Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello once again, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is episode number 46 of The Next Track. We have a guest today. We are happy to welcome a world-renowned percussionist. He is a new music enthusiast and evangelist, founder of the percussion ensemble, The Colin Curry Group. I guess that's kind of a giveaway. Colin Curry himself joins us. Colin, it's very nice to meet you, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Uh, good to meet both of you. Colin, we wanted to get you on the show because you're performing and you're soon recording one of my all-time favorite musical works, Steve Reich's Drumming. I think I first heard this work in that box set that Reich released in the 70s on Deutsche Grammophon. The, the very first Steve Reich work I heard was Six Pianos from that set, and a friend of mine played it to me, and it, it literally changed my musical life when I heard that sort of work. And then when I heard the other pieces, music for mallet instruments, voices and organ, and drumming, I was, I was just totally amazed by this sort of music. How did you first discover Steve Reich's music? As, as a percussionist, I would assume that it's just something that's in the air all the time, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's hard for me to put a precise moment on when I first encountered his music, but it would be sometime in my early, or perhaps at the latest, late teen, mid to late teens, uh, sometime in there, certainly before I came to London. I came to London when I was 17 to study Royal Academy music. But by that time, I was certainly already a fan of the of Steve's music. Uh, I, I suspect the first piece of his that I encountered may have been um, piano phase performed on marimbas, so marimba phase. I think that was kicking around uh, somewhere that I was studying at the time in Scotland. Uh, but from that, I quickly got into music for 18 musicians. And from there, I just grabbed anything I could. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating music. For those listeners who aren't familiar with Steve Reich, he's one of the early minimalists. He was around the same time as Philip Glass. And Steve Reich's, particularly his early music, is a lot more about repetition, but it also uses something he calls phasing. And so we were just talking about piano phase and, and marimba phase. And this is very important in the work we're talking about drumming. Can you explain what phasing is and, and how it works and, and why it's so difficult to perform something with phasing? Certainly can. Well, um, phasing is a technique used in performance that uh, Steve Reich pioneered, and it came out of his early experimental works using tape loops. Now, what he did was um, he was uh, trying to find new textures and ways of, of using tapes. And this is back in the, in the 60s, the good old 60s. And he was interested by the effect of having two identical recordings played by uh, tape machines side by side, pressing play at the same time, and having one of them inevitably uh, going a little bit faster than the other. So it starts off together, as you can imagine, simultaneous, and then one part gradually breaks apart and, and goes ahead of the more static part, creating a, a kind of friction in the sound. So you can hear that they're the same thing but one is accelerating slightly ahead of the other and creating new uh, and quite challenging, fascinating textures. Um, and this he did uh, using tapes um, in several pieces, pieces like It's Gonna Rain uh, and Come Out, for example. Um, and in a lateral move, he begged himself the question, could potentially two performers do this? Could you have musicians facing off each other, playing identical material, 
and having one musician staying static and the other one accelerating ahead. And initially he thought, nah, no way, it's never going to work. You know, it would be impossible. But sure enough, through tenacity, uh, and it is a very difficult skill, by the way, and, and remains so, um, it was shown that this was possible. So you have people playing identical rhythms, someone accelerates and joins back uh, at a new a fixed spot, a prearranged spot, to make what he uh, terms a resulting pattern. And basically, broadly speaking, that's how all the musical changes happen in a piece like drumming, all of them. Right. To better explain it, imagine that you've got 12 notes in a measure and one of the performers is playing them at a certain speed and the other one is playing it a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. You're going to have points where note two overlaps with note one and then note three overlaps with note one. But then after a while, it's going to come back to exactly the same original position where note one and note one will be at the same place. So as a listener, you hear this as a sort of a sort of hesitation and when that hesitation resolves, it's almost as if a piece of music is resolving to the tonic chord and you get that sort of sense of relief. Well, what you get especially uh, in drumming is actually his accelerations um, go only a very small stretch. So it's interesting you're talking about the number 12 because drumming is based on the 12 note pattern. Uh, basically, the, the, the accelerandos um, are, are between very small points of shifting. So you would never actually go full circle in drumming. That never happens. Um, you, you, you go to this new position, which is a resulting pattern. So if you start unison, you end up with something new and then maybe the clock keeps turning. So maybe you keep going round and you keep phasing again. But uh, I, there's not a point in which you actually get back to a unison at the beginning uh, again. But maybe you have note one playing at the same time as note two. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you end up uh, in a new, the resulting pattern is always a prearranged and stable rhythm. So, and it can be, it is notated uh, in a way. So you always know precisely where you're aiming for. And to look on the page, you wouldn't actually know uh, that it's basically the same rhythm, but the second player is just starting a, a beat early. Um, but that could be indeed what it is. And if you analyze it and look at it, you will realize that. So you always know where you're headed. Um, but he actually usually just gets things to become more and more complicated. So he, something phases, it phases again. Another player will come in, they'll phase, more phasing happens, and he builds up more and more textures this way. So he's actually, he's not looking to go to unison. He's looking to break away from unison and make a considerable number of resulting patterns with multiple players. So how many musicians are there playing uh, drumming? So there are uh, nine percussionists um, and they are joined by um, some other musicians who are extremely important in highlighting certain of the timbres that are created uh, by the percussion instruments. So in part two, um, the marimbas, the multiple marimbas create this fascinating glow, this amazing sound that honestly, if you shut your eyes, it does sound like um, women's voices. It sounds like female voices. It, is so, it the, the harmonics of the different notes that combine yeah. to make that sound? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the overtones and the warm richness, uh, this oscillating sound, sort of ducking and diving in, in real time, that creates this uh, amazing timbral illusion of, of women's voices. And to highlight this magic, Steve actually decided, as he was workshopping this thing, to bring in women's voices to highlight this. So what happens is they fade into texture, not 
certainly not in your face, but they, they just come in enough to highlight this and then they fade out again. And they come in again with some new patterns and come away again. And they highlight, this part of the piece isn't fixed, um, but they just, they have, because they have several options, they just highlight certain things that exist naturally within these new patterns. I think it's very interesting how, when you hear the phasing effects and the looping, how your brain tries to make order of these sounds. I mean, there are moments where you sense an evolving pattern and a resolution and a dissolving of patterns. Yeah. So you're not just passively listening as an audience member. You're not thinking, oh, say that's a nice tune. Your brain is compelled to try and, well, I guess for lack of a better expression, make sense of what's being performed. And that's, that's where the fireworks are. That's where the excitement is. Well, drumming is one of the ultimate pieces that's in the ear of the beholder because uh, especially the way we play it, I would have to say, is, is that we make it uh, very ambiguous as to where the beat actually is. So there's this great joke about drumming is, where's one? <laughs> not, ah, not, so you're, you're playing on the downbeat or something? Well, it's actually, if you're counting six, it's beat five. If you're counting three, it's beat three. <laughs> but it's, it's not the downbeat. The beat starts here, one, two, bam, starts on beat three. Right. We, we tend to count three at the beginning, but we count different things throughout the piece. Um, but the thing, going back to the timbral aspect, uh, the women's voices, for example, I mean, that, that will be scientifically true, that the marimbas will sound like women's voices and they will have the overtones and the colours uh, that are also represented. There'll be a, there'll be a, a Venn diagram there, women's voices and marimbas, they, they do sound similar. And in fact, I've even shut my eyes during drumming sound checks and performances and I've, I've even thought that maybe the, the women are singing already and they're not. <laughs> it's just that the marimbas sound very good that day. Um, we're also joined uh, in part three when the glockenspiels are at play by other instruments uh, and effects used to highlight those very high overtones, um, uh, which involves a piccolo player and also uh, human whistling to get uh, very, very high indeed, um, to get right up there to match glockenspiel overtones and the the singers aren't singing words they're just singing like do do and things like that yeah they're they are um representing the marimbas so they're, they're making their most marimba-esque sound um uh, which i would <laughs> not imitate right now or any other time but it's this kind of do 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 it's just something that, that will blend with, with the marimba sound uh and and sort of highlight it and, and warm it up and, and, and shore it up and, and make it something even more round and beautiful and interesting. And then the great thing is they fade in and they fade away again. So it's, it's sort of very, very subtle. A quick overview of the structure of the piece. It's in four parts. And the first part is for tuned drums. The second part is for marimbas. The third part is for glockenspiels. And the fourth part is all of those instruments together. Plus, you mentioned the other instruments and the women's voices. It takes, what, about between 60 and 90 minutes to perform, depending on how you perform it. How long does your performance take? Uh, we're about an hour, yeah. So it fits on a CD. Yeah, amazingly enough. <laughs> the, the first Steve Reich recording doesn't fit on a single CD. The Deutsche Grammophon recording, I believe it's about 90 minutes or 80 minutes or 82 or something. So it's, it's on two separate CDs. Mm. I saw Steve Reich, I grew up in New York, as you can tell from my accent. I, I saw Steve Reich and his ensemble perform live many times back then. The only time I saw drumming was in 1984 at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, where they were having a sort of retrospective of his work. And I was sitting up in the balcony, which is really interesting because you're looking down at an angle on the performers. And as much as the music is mesmerizing and fascinating, it's also the movements of the performers who are shifting around from instrument to instrument, almost like a ballet. 
How difficult is it to perform this, in part because of the phasing and in part because of the fact that you're moving around and you have to keep the rhythm going? Yeah, well, I think any good Steve Reich piece, any of the large-scale works, so drumming and music for 18 musicians would be the, the best examples here, this should be a kind of well-oiled machine. And I think observing it as a listener, uh, you should be basically watching a kind of organism so it's made up of, of a collection of people but everything is working to one end and uh, we do kind of go for a very streamlined effect in these pieces uh, nothing should ever particularly stick out or there's nothing very sudden happens not not really anyway maybe once or twice in drumming but um it, so everything sh everything sort of everyone's working in this giant tandem if you like however many people are involved um th of course they are very challenging to play well um the phasing techniques bring their own uh, challenges. Um, they're also slightly unpredictable. Um, I'm responsible for all the phasing of the marimbas uh, in part four, for example. That's my job in part four. And it, it's it can, it's a little bit of a lottery. I mean, you, you, you set something in motion, so you, I begin to accelerate away from the group, and I try and keep it weird <laughs> for as long as I can. I try and, and make sure that, that, that it does have an interesting sonic life in, in that sort of musical, rhythmical no man's land when I'm in the phase so that it doesn't happen too quickly. But sometimes it's potluck. Occasionally a phase just sort of zips past and ah, you know, you're already locked in to the new pattern and well, you've had your lot for that one, but you know, better luck next time. So, it, but it's, it's interesting to keep these things a bit unpredictable. Um, no two performances can ever possibly be the same. It's, that's unthinkable. And that also gives it that amazing human element and this, this thing about it, it's a sort of living, breathing thing that's happening in real time, like an organism. And, that, and that's interesting because when people think of repetitive music, minimalist music like this or like early Philip Glass, they think that it's always the same every time. Well, it's repetitive and they're just playing the same thing over and over. But drumming is the best example of how it's not the same thing over and over. No, I mean, we, we, we know what we're doing. I mean, nothing radical would happen. Um, that's not really possible uh, in the piece. Everything has a... a, a a structural, um, I'll say that again. Um, in terms of the structure, everything is, is, is very clearly delineated. So we know exactly what's going to happen next, but quite how it happens is really up for grabs and it will depend on the performance venue. Uh, it will depend on the player. And the nice thing about drumming especially is that it's, we're always waiting for a certain player to um, put something in motion that will allow the piece to move on to the next bit. And it's a very democratic piece. There are no stars in drumming. I mean, everyone has really important stuff to do. What does the score look like? I imagine, you know, it, of course it has musical notation, but are there extra instructions? I mean, how, how, how are the changes conveyed in the score? Well, the original handwritten score for drumming um, was a very good effort at uh, putting onto the page a piece that was essentially workshopped. I mean, there was, when they first performed it, there was no score. And they, they, Steve Rush musicians had it by rote. And in actual fact, this whole business about where's one, well, everyone was counting their own one. <laughs> they, they, they had their own sort of vantage point as to, as to where, the, how the rhythms were working. Um, so putting it into the score form came a bit later. 
And when I first got the score uh, and put the piece together in 2006, I, I mean, I will say freely, and I'm happy to say this, uh, I mean, I was total novice. I mean, I barely knew which way to hold the thing up. I mean, it was, and it's full of instructions. Every page has this spindly writing on it with detailed instructions for what exactly should happen and how the phasing should work. And of course, it's it's a bit awkward to notate the phasing. Uh, how does one do it? And there's just a series of dotted lines at the end of the bar line, and then bam, you get the new pattern in the next bar. So it it is something to get your head around, but um, all the instructions are there and. Uh, Anyone can take the piece on. And there's a new score now. Bluetooth Hawks now have a new score, which is uh, slightly cleaned up and easier to read. How do audiences generally react to this? I mean, you get two kinds of people. One, the, the people who are familiar with Steve Reich and particularly drumming, and other people who may have never heard of it. What's the general reaction from the never heard of it type of people? Well, do you get anyone who's bored and who walks out after 10 minutes? Uh, not that I know of, no. I mean, I, th I think... It's a challenging piece. I mean, if, you, if you've not heard anything like it before, I can imagine it being quite a daunting thing. Um, but it's also the kind of work that would just absolutely blow your socks off. I mean, even that first phase, I mean, what happens to the piece at the beginning is that the, the pattern that will govern the entire music that you're going to hear in the next hour is established one note at a time. So it starts with one note, then there's two notes, then three, and then it goes all the way, it gets all the notes in, uh, and then you have your pattern, and if, if you've never heard the piece before, so you're listening to this thing build up and you might be sort of, you're barely cottoning onto that and maybe starting to get into that before the first phase happens. Now, if you've never had any preparation for that or heard a phase before, you're probably just going to think, what is going on now? You know, you'll think someone's playing at the wrong time. Yeah, you'll think, you know, is it falling apart? What on earth is happening here? Um, but of course, the phasing becomes very, very important and it's it's used all the time and, and it's it's something that you can... I don't know if you ever get used to it, but because it's it's sort of every time a face happens, it's kind of slightly extraordinary. So um, there's plenty for the audience to be overwhelmed by, and I think also seeing all that equipment on stage and maybe not knowing when the women are going to get involved and what are they doing, standing at the back doing nothing. And uh, I think one of the magical moments is also when the drums have been going full tilt for a good quarter of an hour, and finally that reaches a zenith. It sort of reaches a mathematical uh, a, a point of of, of maximum um, reach at the end of the first movement, a, a climax compositionally, structurally, everything, a very high dynamic level. And at that point, the marimbas phase in and the drums fade out. And I think I think that moment. I mean, if that doesn't take your breath away forever, then nothing will. And it's just sheer musical genius. Yeah, two brief comments. Colin was just saying at the end of the first movement, uh, these aren't movements like in a standard symphony where the orchestra stops and tunes up. These are continuous. It it just merges from one into the other. And the second thing is I'll embed a YouTube video on the show notes page and you can watch Colin's group play the beginning of the piece and hear Colin talking about it and Steve Reich talking about it as well. So you'll see that first note and then the second note and how the, the, the other musicians come in. And I think in the video, it goes up to that that sort of first phase change with the on the tune drums. Steve Reich has said basically that you are the best performer of this work. Well, he's been very supportive um, of the ensemble. I think what he likes about it is that we we do have a slightly different approach. Um, and I think our, our version is very powerful um, uh, and has a spectacular dramatic range um, but also I think we, we really approach it like chamber music so it just has a lot of finesse 
uh, and I think we structure it very, very well. It's very, very streamlined. Um, we keep the music ambiguous in a, in a very positive way. We keep it sort of quite mysterious how the rhythms are working. Well, we know exactly where we are, but we don't always want you to know exactly where we are. Uh, and it's a great gaggle of, of players. I mean, the ensemble that I'm in is, is, is just has a, a fantastic group of, of people who, who love this music and have been involved with it now for all these years. And uh, it just, it does sound, it sounds right to us. And the fact that he likes it is great. And, and um, you know, we enjoy performing this piece. We feel that we have a, a particular mark on, on this piece, that's for sure. What is it like to record any work like this? And you've, you've made a number of recordings already. Have you recorded any Steve Reich? We have recorded uh, Steve Reich Quartet. Um, this is a piece written, written for us, uh, Colin Curry Group. Yeah, yeah. So quite a, quite a big deal. We recorded it last year. Uh, we premiered it in 2014. And we have recorded it for Steve's next Nonesuch disc. So you can imagine that great honor. What, what's it like to record this type of music? I once attended a, a recording session of a choral group, and it was interesting to see how they record a whole piece and then they sort of do the drop-ins for every little section that didn't work out. You can't really do that for this type of music, can you? Can you only just do like a single take recording? Well, drumming will be a challenge to record, but uh, fortunately the, the premium on each individual player is relatively low. I mean... Um, no one is going to be under enormous pressure to sort of play virtuoso licks. You know, we're, the, the the job is to sustain patterns and do them well and get your faces sounding interesting. So we will be recording drumming in, in long blocks. I mean, maybe even one whole part at a time. You know, let's record part one. Bam, red light. Off we go. See you in 20 minutes. <laughs> um, and then we'll, then we'll sort of probably have a chat, see how we feel. You know, how did it work? Did you want to do maybe one little bit again. Um, doing drop-ins on drumming will be very, very tricky. So we really, we really will be going for long takes. We'll, be perform we'll basically be performing it as live and recording all day and uh, <laughs> wishing the producer all the best <laughs> and I hope they manage to unpick it. They'll have hours. We will record it for hours that day. That's going to be tiring, yeah. So you are planning to record it soon, and, and that's another reason why we wanted to talk about it, because you're crowdfunding the recording. Why have you chosen to do crowdfunding? In particular, you've got this other recording of yours on Nonesuch, which is a not quite major label, but well-known. So why are you crowdfunding this recording? Um, well, we wanted to have a sort of personalized campaign. We have a lot of supporters, so uh, CCG performs every year in London at the Southbank Centre, and we have a fantastic following there of people who really enjoy our concerts. And we get a lot of support and messages from people who are interested in our work and want to be a little more part of it. So we thought a crowdfunding thing would be an interesting way to put our work out there and allow people a chance to embrace what we do and show their support in a personal way. And uh, that's been very, very successful so far. I mean, we're, we're into the campaign, we're not over the line yet, but um, initial response has been very warm you know and, and very very supportive so it's it's a good way to build the family for for the group and and the music one thing about crowdfunding is that you can offer a number of rewards for different levels of contributions and you can contribute let's see it's 20 pounds to get a cd it's 10 pounds for a download but you've got some interesting rewards for the other higher amounts can you give us a brief overview of these 
Well, sure thing. Uh, we're giving away some mallets that the group have, have used in performances. If people are interested to see what we've been using on the marimbas, the glockenspiels, the drums, you can get these sticks sent to you for a certain amount. Um, we have had signed scores by the composer, although I believe they've all flown out the door already. Um, very popular prize, that one. Uh, you can get a, a percussion lesson from me, um, if you so desire. <laughs> uh, and uh, this, so on a, you know, we don't really do much corporate stuff, but on the, on the corporate level, if you go in for five large, you can get your company's label on the album. So There's also one other reward at 2,500 pounds. Someone can actually make a recording with you. That's right. Uh, for two and a half thousand pounds, you can record clapping music with me. So uh, that's a, a fun reward, uh, but you better have done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> um, cla clapping music is a piece for two performers who basically, it's, I guess it's a phasing piece, isn't it? No, there's no phasing in it. No, it's not a phasing piece. Um, it, the two it, performers it, each clap and they, the sort of rhythms bounce off each other. I mean, although it's not a phasing piece, the principle is quite similar in that you, you have two players who start with the same pattern and uh, one person remains static and the second player gradually shifts their pattern uh, back the way. And again, like a clock face, this again, magic number 12, it's a great musical number, is involved in this piece. It's a 12 quavers long, the pattern. And it's a set of variations in which uh, the second hand clapper is always jumping back through the clock face. So originally they all start together at noon or midday. And then the static player plays the same pattern, and the second player starts at 11, starts at 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and they end up in unison at the end of the piece. Um, a, very, a very fine sort of nuts and bolts, bare bones, Steve Rush piece that really shows the kernel of, of what he does uh, in, a, in a, you know, it's perfectly simple and perfectly complex and rich way. Yeah, I, I heard that performed at the Guggenheim Museum in New York one day. Steve Reich's ensemble was doing a bunch of early works and he also did, what is it, music for wooden blocks? Is that the other one? Music for pieces of wood. Pieces of wood. It's a very similar piece where people it are is. banging pieces of wood together. I'm assuming that the person who pledges the 2,500 pounds and does the recording session will do the fixed part and not the... Yeah. Changes. yeah, we're putting them on the, on the static, uh, but if, if they really got a game, we can go either way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I'll, I'll add a link in the show notes. There's an app that I don't remember who released this app last year, but it's an app that you can use to learn how to play the piece. Yeah, it's a good app. It's a good app. It's, it's quite, you got to be, you got to be good. You got to be really accurate when you're, when you're tapping away on your phone on this app. Otherwise it will, it's game over. So in addition to the recording, you're doing a performance in London on May 5th at the Royal Festival Hall in yeah. South Bank. And yes, you're also performing... Tehillim. Tehillim, my, one of my other favorite Steve Reich work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I've often, yeah. I've played this for people sometimes when trying to explain, now maybe I'm wrong because I'm not a musician, but that the last part of Tehillim is this wonderful melody that's just going around in a circle just wanting to resolve to the tonic chord and it just keeps hesitating and you keep feeling that you just want this resolution and when it does you just let out this beautiful sigh well tehillim is many things um we could fill another broadcast talking about that piece but it it certainly has one of the most rousing conclusions to any piece of music i know um and because of the sacred aspect of the texts and uh, the fantastically moving word setting i think when you do actually get to this hallelujah it's a hallelujah chorus uh, at the end of the of the, of the piece <laughs> i mean it, you're you're all in uh, emotionally and we just performed the work in japan and it's 
indescribably uplifting uh, music. Uh, fa fantastic and so rich on the harmonic palette. I mean, people talk a lot about Steve's, you know, his rhythm and his percussion, but I'm telling you, the, the, the harmonies that he has um, is perhaps the most enticing thing about his music for me. Colin Curry, thanks for joining us. So May 5th in London, you're a Kickstarter to crowdfund your recording of drumming, and we'll have links to all this in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks very much for your support. All right, it is time now for Kirk and I to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to? So my next track this week would have been great to choose a Steve Reich piece, but I've already chosen drumming in the past, and I believe in other Steve Reich work. So to go along with the theme of this kind of repetitive minimalist music, I'm going to choose what may be the first such work. It's called In C by Terry Riley. This was recorded in 1968. I remember when I had the original album on Columbia, the back of the album showed these 53 short musical phrases, and it had the score on the back of the album, and each phrase is just a few notes long. And each of them lasts anywhere from a half beat to 32 beats, and they can be repeated as many times as each musician wants to. They choose to play what they want, when they want, within with some limits. So it's a piece that's, that's entirely different every time you listen to it. This recording from 1968 is about 42 minutes long. The piece itself can be anywhere from 20 minutes to a couple of hours long. There have been dozens of recordings, and it's probably the best-known minimalist work, and it's considered to be one of the first minimalist pieces of music. I would say that in C is a little bit different than music like Steve Reich, where there is this randomness in, in C, and it's not necessarily something that has the same drive and the same melodic interest as drumming or as any of Steve Reich's piece. But it, it's a fascinating work, and I have about six different recordings, some of them with various instruments, some for solo piano. It can be played pretty much on any group of instruments. Every once in a while I put one on and it's really, it's just interesting to hear this sort of thing because it does have this sort of randomness that sort of coalesces at different times. So my, my pick is In C uh, by Terry Riley. It'll be the 1968 Columbia recording, but if you check it out, there's dozens of recordings that are all very different. What about you, Doug? Oh, I'm going in another direction altogether. As I've mentioned many times, I worked in radio for many years, going back to the 80s. Several formats, but predominantly classic rock. And as a result, a lot of classic rock music for me has just lost the magic. I mean, for example, I don't need to hear Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album ever again. The Doors, L.A. Woman, I can't listen to it. The Wall was problematic until I recently listened to the whole thing again. And, you know, it goes on. There's an incredible list of things that I just can't tolerate. Recently, there's been a lot of chatter about revisiting the first album, the self-titled album, by the band Boston. Now, if there's any album I've heard too much of, it's that one. It's a classic rock staple. Any classic rock station is going to play every single song on that album, and as such, I'm totally burned on it. But by all accounts, it's still really a good record. And I remember when I thought it was a good record, but it sounds like cardboard to me now, so I don't know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and get that Boston mojo back, and I'm going to give it a really good, concentrated, critical listen and try to hear it with fresh ears. I may go back to cringing later when WZLX has another block party weekend and my wife takes control of the car radio, but I'm going to give it one more go. Boston is my next track. This has been The Next Track 
a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.